0: Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for braving. It's cold out there. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? When it's two degrees outside and you get up and you realize you should have got up about 20 minutes earlier to warm your car up. So it's one of those days. Uh, go ahead and turn your Bible to Genesis 45. That's where we're going to be today. That's going to be the passage that shows us God more clearly. It's going to help us see Jesus Christ more clearly. It's actually going to help you see yourself more clearly, each other more clearly. It's going to be a helpful passage today. While you're turning there, Genesis 45, and that's where I'm going to want you to stay. um, I'd love to tell you a story. I'm not a storyteller, at least not a real good one. But I'd like to tell a story today of the two most difficult phrases for mankind to say. One of them is, I'm sorry. And the other one is, you're forgiven. I'm sorry, and I forgive you. Very difficult. In fact, I don't think anything is more difficult than that. We are slow to ask for forgiveness, and we are very slow to grant it. We're slow to ask for forgiveness, to say, I'm sorry, because inside what we feel like we're really saying is, is, I'm lesser than you. I'm below you, and you are above me. But I think sometimes, and I think for most of us in here, it might be more difficult to say, at least in our heart, I forgive you, because inside we lose control. We lose control over the situation and inside, again, it feels like we're saying, I'm above you if I can just keep on to this and not let it go. I can keep on to it. And people today in this room right here are in both groups. Some of you are in both groups at the same time. Most of us in here are hurt. To be human is to hurt. You cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid being hurt and dishing out hurt, even if you hang out with the coolest Most awesome similar people in the world. They will hurt you even on accident and you will hurt them You know we As we go into this series called we are different I would like to look at how we ferociously cling on to the hurts and struggle with giving out forgiveness We do this because we are so different. I mean we just I'm not like you And you're not like me. You're not like the person sitting next to you, even if you're married to them, right? Amen? They're very different. We're all very different from each other. And because we are so different, we collide and we slam into each other and we put deans and dents on our doors because we are so different. And we're even different in how we process those hurts and pains, aren't we? And as different as we are from the person next to us, as different as we are in how we process it, we're very different from a culture and a city outside these walls who don't even look at Jesus the way most of you look at Jesus very very different. So, in this, I think probably the most go-to safe passage in teaching forgiveness, we went over a few months ago. We did a series called Stuff Jesus Never Said and we looked at the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, very key and pivotal passage on teaching forgiveness, all right? I want to teach a different one today. I want to teach one out of Genesis 45 because In my mind, I think it's probably one of the most dramatic scenes in the entire story of God. In my opinion. One of the most dramatic scenes. Emotional scenes. And it helps me see Jesus very clearly. I'm going to skip, or at least start, with the climax of the story. And the climax of the story is set in a courtroom. Okay? So you've got a judge with the power of life and death in his tongue. He says, up they live. He says, down they die. You've also got people in there that are looking on with fascination, wondering what is going to happen, and then you've got a a subset of guys in there that are scared to death and terrified because they have no idea what is about to happen to them. You have all of this emotion, the fascination, the the, the, the terror, the, the forgiveness that is in this one room that's going to help us see what God has done for you and me. This judge, his name is Joseph. And the punchline to the story is, is he's related to the guys that he's looking down from the throne upon because now he is in a position to give life or death to people who claimed life or death over him 22 years earlier. 22 years earlier. And let's go ahead and fast forward back. 22 years Joseph is 17 years old doing stuff that other 17 year olds do. He was his father's favorite. Right? Joseph was. Daddy's favorite. Partly because he came from, Je- from Jacob's Favorite wife, Which is a totally different sermon, right? He had favorite wives. This was the son of one of his favorite wives. But I think probably even more important, he was his favorite because he was a little bit of a tattletale. A snitch. Told on his brothers, right? And I'm not going to lie. I am not always against the little snitchery going on in my household. I am the father of three kids, okay? So I know what the company line is when one of them comes and snitches on the other. We help them deal with their heart. You just want them to get in trouble. You're elevating yourself. You're pressing them down. That's sick. Let's look what Jesus did, but there's a little piece of me that wants to slip them some chocolate. You know what I'm saying? Because we've got a little line of communication going on. So we can work something out, guys, just so you know. Right? Work out a little plan. So here he is. Preferential treatment from his father, and he's got hatred from his brothers. All at the same time. The unique thing about this story is there is favoritism, envy, and jealousy all throughout this family line. We don't even, I mean, it would take months to go over this whole story. But if you go back and read Genesis, you have Isaac, Rebecca, you have Jacob, Esau, Rachel, Leah, Laban. And they're all crossing each other all the time and being deceitful and there's envy and jealousy. It is nothing but one dysfunctional soap opera and nothing is changing right here. And what this passage shows us is what God has always been showing us in, in Genesis is that in the midst of our funk and our weird scandal and the crust all over us and the jagged edges that we have as mankind, He works in the midst of it to produce remedy for mankind. We see God answering mankind's problem through this bloodline. It's beautiful. God is brilliant in how He does this. So, Jacob, the father gives his favorite son, Joseph, a pretty cloak. A cloak of many colors, which is not that big of a deal today. But back then, it showed preferential treatment. It showed who the favorite son was, and most scholars believe that that cloak kind of excluded him from work. He got to walk around with a cheese tray and watch everybody else work. And any time they didn't work, guess what he did? He would snitch. I mean, can we just let that sink in for a minute? What would that be like today? It would be like a very, very wealthy family with 15, 20 kids, kids all over the place. But they only leave one trust fund, just one, for the one kid who does not work, who's always been daddy's little favorite. And on top of that, he's a snitch. That's the dysfunction that we have going on right now. And then to make complications even more complicated, Joseph started having dreams that were allegedly from God. Now, today we know that they were. But back then, that, that would have gotten beat up in the schoolyard. The dreams, even as he's talking about his dreams and probably abusing the announcing of his dreams, he has the confusion of his father and even the further hatred of his brothers, even more so. So, what we find later on, and don't turn there, stay where you're at in 45, but Genesis 37, if we could go ahead and put that up there, Chris. We have the brothers off, kind of far away from home. Joseph comes and finds them to check in on how they're doing, as Joseph probably so often did with his very pretty clothing on. And he says this. This is what the brothers say to each other in verse 19. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Again, can we let this sink in for a minute? Just for a minute. Some of you have come from some banged up families. Brothers, sisters that were abusive, parents that were abusive, uncles, aunts that were abusive. Nothing anywhere close to a hallmark family. That's where a lot of you have come from. So some of this might resound, they saw their brother and immediately plotted to murder him. Can you appreciate the dysfunction in that? Of course, reason shows up, and they decide that it would not be reasonable to kill him because we could make money off of him. So they sold him into slavery instead. And for the next 22 years, the next 10 chapters, for the next 22 years, Joseph is hustled and shuffled off between people, starting off with the captain of the bodyguard, then to the chief jailer, then to Pharaoh himself, from job to job, from from weird thing to weird thing. The whole time in his mind, the whole 10 chapters, probably wondering, would I be here if those guys didn't sit against me, mulling on it, chewing on it, meditating on it? That's a long time, 22 years. Some of you know this because you're there. You've been here. You might be there right now. Have you ever paid the price long term for something that somebody did to you? Maybe you've been abused. Statistically, there'd be quite a few of you in here that have been physically or sexually abused. Statistically, there'd be more than a couple handfuls of you. Maybe financial disaster has come on you because of a wicked bank, a wicked person, a wicked relative. Things have happened to you. Maybe you've paid the price long term for someone who has done something and you too have your own ten chapters to think about it. Your own 22 years to mull it over. It's just stuck to you. and You can't shake it off. I mean, I was thinking about this as I was putting this together. 22 years. Let's not leave that too quickly. I was 16 years old 22 years ago. As you do the math in your head. I turned 39 this month. I was 16. I was learning how to drive. I was telling my son earlier, I was rocking out to MC Hammer on the cassette tape. And my 84 Dotson Sentra right? With original Air Jordans on and steps all shaved into the side of my head with my tight-rolled jeans. That seems like a different universe from today. That way, it feels so long ago, 22 years. It's a long time. And again, some of you know this. Some of you know this. You've been doing it. You've been offended and hurt for not just days or weeks or months, but for years. And some of you maybe even decades. You've been hurt. And you've tried to forgive, but you just can't get there. It's almost like you're hugging a tree and your, your hands almost meet and then it just fails. You've tried over and over again. And then sometimes you actually feel like you have forgiven. You feel like you've actually gotten there. But isn't it interesting how it just keeps coming up? Like a nagging cough over and over again and you realize, ah, I don't think I've really dealt with that. I think I, think I might be at the beginning of dealing with it or at the end of dealing with it, but, but it's still there. It's still in my mind. I think a lot of that is because proximity has been an important part. Now, listen, when I say proximity, and we did talk about this months ago, and if forgiveness is something you struggle with, I do challenge you to go back and listen to that sermon, and I don't do that often, but we really did pull apart Matthew 18, and we really did look at that parable. But what I described then, and I'll reprise for you now, is proximity. Your distance from the offender determines the depth of your hurts, right? Right? So occasionally I will get trolled on social media. No big deal. I don't even care. I don't even really know them, right? But if it's my neighbors, I might know their last name and their kids' names, and it might hurt because our proximity has shrunk a little bit, right? What if it's some of you in here? Some of you I've known for for a few years. It would hurt. I've known Garrett and Christian back there for four years now, more than four years gotten really deep. If they were to offend me or hurt me or vice versa, there would be pain because the proximity is getting even closer. Right? David, David Haller, where is he? I've, I've known him for almost 20 years now. Gosh, my wife. You see how that works? And for a lot of you, the pain, the grenade that was tossed at you was tossed from not that far away. The proximity was close, and the steam steams even that much more. But getting back to the story, In this time, this 10 chapters, this 22 years, Joseph is blooming. He's blooming, and it's just obvious, from a cursory reading, that God's hand is involved. His favor is at every turn. His blessing is all over him. He grows, he grows in his capacity, his recognition, until eventually, 10 chapters later, he is one of the highest counselors in the land, second only to Pharaoh himself. And a lot of times not even second to Pharaoh, but even equal to Pharaoh. In fact, in this text, he calls himself the father of Pharaoh. And Because of a God-designed famine, and yes, he will do that. Because of a God-designed famine, it brings these brothers to this court to build this beautiful moment that we're looking at today. Here it is. You have him there as king of the land and these treacherous brothers right before him. And they have no idea what's about to happen. They have no idea who this guy is. They have no idea that it's Joseph because he doesn't even look the same. I mean, for one, he's 22 years older. But he's got lady clothes on and man liner and stuff like that. And you don't wear stuff like that unless you're an Egyptian king or you got struck by lightning or something weird. It just doesn't look like what people look like. He didn't look like the guy that they grew up with. It's a totally different guy. He could recognize them, but they couldn't recognize him. And that opens the door for great, great drama. Genesis 45. Let's look at it. Verse 1 in your Bible where you're at. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. Okay, so he's pretty tore up. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And then this powerful, powerful statement. And let it burn itself in your brains today. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. Now listen, hear me clearly. Kings don't say this. Kings do not say this read the story of esther it only takes you just under an hour to do it if you read the story of an S of esther this is a primary theme the king is unapproachable to approach the king without being granted that permission is to catch a spear is <laughs> to be killed on the spot kings just don't say come to me close gather to me it's a beautiful statement so as he says this they have no idea what's about to happen no idea at all they're mystified not just that Joseph is alive, not just that Joseph is royalty now. How that happened, they don't know. But they're mystified that he has grace, and mercy, and gentleness, and love. Because friends, as you and I know, this is against the natural order of things. That, that's not what's supposed to happen in that moment. That's the moment where we stand back and say, I've been waiting for this moment. I'm not going to lie. I didn't think it was going to happen, but here we are. And I just got to say, I've been looking forward to this. I've got tattoos on my back talking about how I love this. I've written songs about how I've longed for this moment. And here it is. Boy, I am going to drop the boom. I'm so excited. That's what our heart wants to do. You're going to jail. If you even make it there, if I don't kill you first, that's the natural heart. So what happened to this guy? It goes on to say, and they came near him, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now, and he can see their face, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Seems like he's taking it pretty well, doesn't he? Verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You, You didn't do this. God did this. You see, generations earlier, generations earlier, God had told Abraham, that it is through your bloodline, and through your seed, that the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now this is a a very quick, quick rendering and answer to that prophecy, right? Because immediately there is some of the seed, there is some of that bloodline that is blessing the nations of the earth as they come in from the famine. But this is just a precursor. It's actually pointing forward to a better, a better Joseph, who through his bloodline will be a better blessing to even more nations of the earth, even today. But right here, God is revealing how he works. This is what scholars and theologians, this is what they call providence, where you have the voluntary actions and will of man running right alongside the active will and intentions of God. You have mankind saying, I want to do this, this is my will, this is my plan. At the very same time, you have God saying, I want to do this, this is my will, this is my plan. And they just don't compete with each other. And it blows our minds. It's indescribable how providence works. This is what he's talking about. In fact, this is one of the biggest stretches of text in the Bible where we see this played out. And we're going to hit it again even this morning. But he goes on to say, He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, come. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and near your children and your children's children and your flock and your herds. And he's excited, you can tell. I don't hear any anger. I don't see any residue. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Remember that word, poverty. You see, it's at this place in the story that the king figure is collecting a family unto himself. A family of very flawed people. He is drawing them close to him. What you see is a man who is processed well an injury due him. 22 years he's had time to process this. I bet he had some really dark nights in the jail. I bet he had some really dark nights as he was being traded to gypsy, to gypsy, to gypsy until he found himself in Potiphar's house. I guarantee he didn't process it quickly. But at some point in this 22 years, in this 10 chapters, God shows him the tapestry of his design. And it is there that you can see that he found some peace in God's design in his hurt. The beauty of this passage and what elevates it beyond being just a normal story or even a good story is how closely tied it is to God's gospel story for you and me. There is a direct, a direct line. A direct line. You see, the whole story that we're looking at today is really an echo of God's gospel. It's, it, it's an echo. It's not the true original sound source. It's a reverberation of the original sound source. It's a shadow, a shape cast from the original It's not the Gospel. It pictures the Gospel. It points to the Gospel. It illustrates it. It forecasts it. It reveals it for you and me. And in order for you and me to begin forgiving people to God's glory and for our good, we have to read this text here with the Gospel in view. If you fragment those apart from each other, this doesn't make sense. And listen, this is how a lot of us grew up reading the Bible, okay? A lot of us grew up reading the Bible as a book full of disjointed stories that aren't really connected. Cool Noah story, cool Jonah story, cool David story, the gospel somewhere in the middle of it all, right? And you have cool Peter stuff, cool Paul stuff, you have Revelation, which we don't really understand, right? You have all these disjointed and weird stories that are kind of only connected because they fall within the cover of the same book. But, friends, listen, they are all pointing to God's gospel for us. It is not disjointed. It is not fragmented. It is one overarching story where all of it points to the most dramatic scene on earth in human history which is God coming to earth living among us, dying on a cross raising out of the tomb, going up to the right hand of God, waiting to come back again. It all points to that and this is a perfect example of it. It's a perfect example. Look at this story. Friends, we are the brothers. We're the brothers. We're the ones in death. We're in a jam. The sin's on our hands. We still have the blood. We, we still have this ripped cloak. We have the stain on us. We can't get it off. We are the brothers in this. Paul talks about this in Romans real clearly. When he says, every, and he says and I'm saying it in a different way, but Paul basically says, for we all fall short. Every human being that has walked this earth, that has a beating heart, is a rebel and a God-hater. All of us. Even at our best. And we can't measure up to God's value. We either do a poor job of being a God, or we do a poor job of measuring up to look like God. To meet his standard by our own works. We do a poor job of both. We are miserably fallen short. And the thing is, is we're actually more exaggerated form of these brothers. Because we didn't just pretend to kill a better person. We did. The the blood is on our hands. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is that we have a better Joseph, with a better grace and a better forgiveness. We receive peace, and we are freed from the poverty that comes by sin and comes by death in the garden. And I've used this word poverty, and usually when someone says the word poverty, we, we immediately think of financial ruin. But it doesn't just describe financial ruin. It describes relational ruin, spiritual ruin, emotional ruin biological room. we can be impoverished, and everyone in this room is experiencing poverty to a certain degree. There's a real helpful book I'm going through right now. It's called uh, When Helping Hurts, by, written, written by two guys, Corbett and Fickert, and this is how they describe poverty. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work. They're just not just. They're not for life. They're not harmonious. They're not enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of peace in all of its meaning. And I agree. God came as king to restore peace and eradicate poverty where there's brokenness. He brings wholeness. Creation has been screaming and yearning and begging for a remedy. And our king comes and he brings it. So here is the punchline. We are the dirty brothers and we appear before a better Joseph. We are the dirty brothers. We have a better Joseph looking at us. And what does he say? But the most beautiful words that we could ever hear come near to me. Even with our sin and our stink. We even haven't had a a chance to say how sorry we are. Come near to me. Even with 22 years, come near to me. It's beautiful. I see this, and it gives me a deeper passion for Christ. Kings don't say this, but our king does. We don't catch wrath and vengeance as his people We catch mercy and grace. Well, Luke, that might be great, but how do I change? How does this help me forgive that jerk? That thing they did to me, that thing that she did to me, he did to me. I think one thing that we can do is, can we just freely admit that there's still pain left? Can we just still freely admit that we're not done forgiving? We're somewhere in the middle of it all, but for some of you, you keep saying that you've forgiven someone, but you haven't done it yet why it keeps coming up. Even this week when I was putting this together, I'm getting ready one morning and I'm feeling chill. I'm feeling like there's no one I've got a grudge against. There's no one I have any bitterness or unforgiveness with. And so I prayed that dangerous prayer, which I hope God helps you with today. God, can you show me people that I'm struggling with that I've just not finished this process with? I don't think there are any because I'm feeling pretty good about it all. But just just in case, man, immediately, I didn't get to it that fast. Person after person after face after face after face. And I realized, man, I have stopped short of understanding what God's gospel has done for me. I've stopped short. So I think we should freely admit that we might be in the process of forgiving, but most of us haven't finished. And we still struggle. And it's important for us to admit where we have unfinished business. Super important. It's easy for us to see this on other people, isn't it? It's harder for us to see it in ourselves. You ever talk to that person that they always bring up that hurt in every conversation? And if the conversation isn't about their hurt, they're going to somehow get it there really fast. Every conversation is all over. You just want to shake them and say, bro, get over that. Like, straight up, get over that. They can't. They're trying to use everything but the gospel to forgive that person, it is just not working. Easy for us to see it in someone else. Very difficult for us to spot it in ourselves. It's also important for us to recognize that God understands, sees, and recognizes our hurt. I think a lot of the reason we hold on to the pain and the carnage that has happened to us, a lot of the reason we hold on to it and we won't let it go is because we feel alone in it all. We feel like God doesn't see it, but no one sees it but me. So if I let go of it and I've given away control of this, then that makes me extra alone. So we hold on to it with just white knuckles. If God isn't controlling this, then I will. And that gives birth to bitterness and grudges. And I think that's where it is. I think it's our hungerness or our our hungry nature for control that, that provokes that. So as Kevin said earlier, we've been going through the four G's. Okay, can you put that up there, Chris? And you have those cards all around you. Take those. Feel free to take those with you. And we've been going through these every single week. And I'm finding myself in that third one, yet again, for this application. God is great, so I need not be in control. Listen, this is important, okay? It might look like a gimmick if you've come in once or twice. We really are doing this until this whole series is over. Because this is the Rosetta Stone for how we counsel each other and ourselves. This is a new language. When you're meeting with each other, when you're you're meeting with yourself in God, this ought to be the language that you're using to preach the gospel to self and to others. God is great, so I need not be in control. We want to have control over that person, over those people, because forgiving them feels very close to endorsing what they've done. And then we've lost control. We don't like that. It's too much for us to stomach. We want vengeance. We want repayments. We want them to pay it back, and we want them to be destroyed. And that's what my heart wants. I don't know about yours.
1: That's about the only thing
0: that's going to feel good to me in the moment. It's for them to catch it, for them to get theirs. And maybe even, if I'm lucky, for me to be a part of it. This is what Paul says in Romans 12. Repay no evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but lead it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Sounds to me like God's in control. <laughs> Sounds like he, he's got his hands on the reins. He's got it under control. That's what I hear when I read this. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so, doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. That's an interesting sermon in and of itself right there. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So did you catch this? God is saying care for them, pray for them, bless them. And again, this is against the natural order of things. This is against the way of the land. This isn't how we think. It's not how we work. We want repayment. We want vengeance. We can become very self-pitying and self-justifying when we sin against the person that has sinned against us. And this is how we do it. And I've heard it a million times. I know what I did was bad, but it's not as bad as what they did to me. And that's how we do it right there. Can I just tell you from a pastor's view and doing this for just a little while, a lot of times the people that are grievously hurt, serious hurts, I have to deal with them on how they are sinning almost as bad, sometimes worse, to the person that hurt them. Those of you who have been grieved deeply, think not, think not that that makes anything you do okay. Even if what they did was horrible. Because we can't self-pity and self-justify. God is in control. But Luke, they need judgment. They need justice. Well, we serve a God of justice. You're in luck. God is in control. He sees it all. He was there. And let's look at this. in Genesis 50, 20. This is now just kind of zipped forward in the story that we've been kind of working in. And this is what Joseph says. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil, God meant good. You meant to kill me, He meant for me to be alive. You meant for me to be shamed, He brought glory to Himself and for my good. You meant bad, and God the whole time had good in mind. Now as cool as that is, that is actually itself pointing forward to a future passage with Peter in Acts 2. So these should always be paired together when you're reading in your own time. This Jesus, Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whose plan? God's plan. Whose will? God's will. His architecture. right? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was God's plan, but it was your plan too. It was God's plan, his perfect will to crush him on the cross, and it was your murderers' hands that did the work. And both those are true at the same exact time. You know what I see? I see a God in control. I see a God in total and utter control. That thing that happened to you, and I am not playing it down, that serious thing that happened to you, it was wrong. And it was a sin. And God was not absent. He was not out of control. but He is working through it for His glory and for your good. No, I don't know how that works all the time. I don't know how that works. But I do want to remind you that God came to destroy that thing that is destroying you. You hate sin? He hates it worse. You hate that thing that was done to you? He hates it even more than you do. He hates it more. He did more. He paid more to undo what is undoing you. It's good to remind yourself of that. It's good to do that. When you forgive others... It's good to forgive others from the posture of one who has been forgiven. Any other way of trying to forgive others will fail. And 20 years later, you're going to be looking at the same stupid offense. Okay? The gospel posture is the only one that brings life. You have to tell yourself, God is in control, and God regards me, and God loves me, so I don't need to be in control. I can let this go. I can let it go. I can let it go for God's glory. The the most common... Reasons people forgive somebody else is because it's the right thing to do and that's true It is the right thing to do insufficient. That's an insufficient reason for you to do it though But that's the Christian thing to do. It's the biblical thing to do, right? Yes, it is. That's true That's not a good motor though. It will fail you I've even heard some people say I'm gonna forgive because I don't want it to tear me up inside It's healthy for me. It's good for me if I forgive them that that's actually true, too These are all true statements but they're not good motors, they're not good engines. They go behind forgiveness, and they will fail you. They will fail you. I need to finish this story. Genesis 45, and verse 22, if you go back to this Genesis story. It says this, to each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. This is interesting because these are the same guys that took his clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with good things. It's funny, they took his donkey and they took his good things. Right? Bread, provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. That seems like an odd thing to say, doesn't it? I've always even passed thought. That's just an odd thing to say. Hey, don't argue with each other on your way home, by the way. Right? Why? Why? Because we're just like them. We would start arguing over who is the most guilty because we don't like the way it feels to be forgiven sometimes. So we start pointing fingers. That's what we do today. Listen, there's no reason for us to quarrel. This is a good good directive for us as a community. There is no more quarreling between God and you if you were in his family. There's no more strife between you and God. So why on earth would there be any strife between each of us? Why would there be any quarreling with us But Luke, what they did was so terrible. And I'm not here to take that from you. And I'm not here to say that your hurt is stupid. I'm not here to say that your hurt isn't valid. I'm not here to say that it is small. It's not my job to try to manage your feelings. But my job is to show you the cross. My job is to show you what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus and what it says to your wounds and your hurts. That is my job. I want you to remember that you murdered with your sins and your rebellion the Lamb of God, and yet He still looks at you and says, Please come near to me. Come near to me. Friends, that's gotta soften your heart. That's gotta soften your heart towards your neighbor. So as I finish this, and we go from how we change to how we work as a community. Right? Because as a community, we do slam into each other. We do cause dents and dings if we do it well. If we do it well. How do we pop each other's dings and dents out? How does that work? Right. I think one thing I can do to give you as an application is a lot of times people will pretend that that thing that hurt them didn't hurt that bad. There's a little bit of a, of, of a pretending that, well, it's not that bad. I mean, I, I, I know it sounds bad, but I'm over it now. And I think what they've done a lot of times as I talk to them, they've trusted time more than they've trusted God. They've trusted, they've trusted time to erase that sin and the pain of it more than they've trusted what the Lord has done. Because you know how it is. You, you feel hurt, but a week later, the sting is still there, but it's just not as stingy, right? Ten years later, you remember it. But it's not there as egregiously. It's not, it's, it doesn't have any more teeth. or, or It just stinks. I think this is what I see the most. And I've even seen this with people who have had bad crimes committed against them. Bad ones. Stuff that breaks your heart just to hear it. And here it is, years later, they act like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Listen, when someone tells you something like that, don't let them off so easy. Yeah, I was beat up when I was a kid, but it, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's not processing it well. Help them. said, well, sounds like a big deal to me. And work with them through that. Show them the gospel in this. Show them that God is in control. Help them. Help them. You know, I eat a lot of meals that my wife cooks. She cooks a lot. She cooks really good. But there are some meals that I eat sitting at her table that I can tell when I'm eating it, whatever pot she cooked this in, I'm going to be scrubbing on for like 30 minutes when I'm done eating this because I clean most of the dishes, and I'm like, "Mm, this is good. It's all kind of sauces and barbecue sauce and all, but I know what happens when you cook stuff in in, in those sauces. It just becomes plastered on the side of the container, and I just eat slowly, hoping that one of my kids will get up and clean the pot for me. It's the one I love the most, by the way, is the answer to that. But, (laughs) the snitch. But this is how it feels when I get around people sometimes who have an offense from a decade past that they just keep pretending it's not a big deal. That residue just gets cooked and recooked and re-cooked, Never cleaned, just covered with more junk. And cooked and cooked and cooked. That's why when I sit with them and I'm like, "Look, but, but you don't understand, you're not forgiving them because that's a we've got to talk about. It. No, 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 I, I can't forgive them. I know I'm supposed to, I just can't, I just won't. Help them, help them. When you see people that are struggling with this, help them see the gospel. Lead them to forgive. Lead them to see they don't need control. Listen, they will struggle. Some of you have struggled today hearing that God has a plan that involves you being hurt. Let's be honest. That's a struggle for all of us. Let me remind you, and you remind those that you're doing life with. Yes, God's architecture does have pain for us involved, but ultimately, the most beautiful part of God's story is is that he destroyed everything that is bringing you sadness. He destroyed it for you, giving grace to you, totally despite you, Totally despite your best attempts to get it from him, and totally despite your best attempts to run away from him. He has given you grace. And then as we do this, to the city of Knoxville. In John 13, 35. And I don't know if I have this up there or not. Do I not? Okay, it's all right. Don't, don't worry about it. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's funny. I love this. Wouldn't this be cool if this was the primary marker in how the city understood who we were? If this was the primary marker. Not, not, not that we are known because we sit a certain way, or we attend a certain way, or we schedule our bank book a certain way, or we schedule our calendar a certain way. Or we talk a certain way, or we read a certain way. Those are all okay ways to be known as a people. But what if it was known by how we reconciled with each other? How we popped each other's dents out? What if that was the way? Listen, that's revolutionary. That is countercultural. That is fascinating to a people who have never experienced it before. And it paints a picture of God clearly for them. Because there's no one that you're going to bump into who's not carrying some deep, 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 deep pain. Some of you in here today are far from God and you are, you carried in just, just pounds and pounds of it. So much hurt. And let me tell you, you can let that go. Because we have a God who's in control. He will minister to your heart. That vengeance that you hunger for, that repayment that you want so bad, He will meet you there and He will convince you that what he has to offer is better than that. Payments. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to go ahead and worship. Woo, that was me. My bad. Go ahead and stand up. And as we worship, one thing that I think is upon me to tell you is we have the elements in the back. We have bread. We have juice. It's not wine because wine's school property. But we have what symbolizes a broken body and spilt blood. That's for sure. A visual gospel for us. Okay. There is a beautiful statement, Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and that's not exactly what this is, by the way, but this is an act of worship. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come back after your gift. Listen, as we work together, worship together, talk together, eat together, party together, this is a great time to recognize that there is jank. You've dented my door. Or I know that I've hurt you. This is where we put the mark out of what a people of God look like in this moment. Communion is a gorgeous time. It's a beautiful time to reconcile. It is one of my favorite times. As we gather around, a king that says, please come near in broken form. Broken for us. Broken for us. And he says, please come near. It's a beautiful time for us to do that thing. As we reconcile with each other and we reconcile with God. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I thank you that me as a brother, as a scandalous, treacherous brother, with nothing good in me, as I stood before you in my depth of sin on my worst day, and you looked at me and you said, please come near. Lord, let that define how we look at others. Father, I'm ashamed to say that still, even after putting a sermon together like this and preaching it, that I still struggle with forgiving certain people. I still, Father, it's so difficult. And it's difficult because I don't believe that you are totally in control. I just don't believe that you're great all the time. So, when I don't forgive, I sin against you. It's a lie, Lord. Help us in our hearts not lie. Help us in our hearts not say, God, you just aren't that great and you're not in control, so I have to be in control. I will not forgive. Help us turn from that lie and worship you for who you are, seeing what you've done for us and responding by how we act with each other and with the world. Lord, because we want to be a missionary church, but no way, shape, or form are we going to make any sense to this city if we are known by other weird things and not known by our love for each other. It just won't make any sense. It won't translate. A lost culture, Lord, I know is not intoxicated by the way we dress and talk to each other and hang out. It's not hungering for that. It's hungering for love. Lord, let how we act with each other show how you've acted with us. That, that is worth being fascinated over. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for being a noble king. Thank you for drawing us in the